This is Starting Somewhere, and I'm Buffy Gorilla. During the making of Starting Somewhere, we spoke to some fantastic people, but we weren't able to include all of the wise words that they had to say. So we're releasing a series of bonus episodes of Starting Somewhere. In this bonus episode, you'll hear from Amalia Ilgner. Amalia is a freelance journalist working in London. Amalia had an internship at Monocle, which by a lot of people's standards would be considered a dream internship. Monocle is a pretty aspirational magazine. But for Amalia, it soon became apparent that the aspirational nature of Monocle did not stretch to their internship program. Amalia decided to take Monocle to court in attempts to shine a light on unfair internship practices that are happening in the UK and around the world. Here's Amalia's full interview, which I think you'll find really enlightening and will make you stop and consider, one, how you think of your internship, and two, how companies treat their interns. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself, Amalia? What did you study and where did you study? Well, actually, I'm from Sydney, Australia, and I originally studied like a BA in communications about 10 years ago, and I came to England and thought I'd live and work for, you know, six months, come back, but I stayed for 10 years, and I worked as an advertising copywriter in a bunch of, like, massive agencies, but changed my careers in 2015 and did a master's in journalism at Goldsmiths University which is pretty well regarded. It was excellent. So it was a year's program studying like all aspects of print and online journalism, just not broadcast. And since graduating in 2016, I've worked in a bunch of newspapers and magazines in London. When you looked for your internship at Monocle, how did you come across it? I've sort of read Monocle on and off since it launched about 11 years ago. I wasn't a subscriber or anything, but like I was aware of it and its mix of sort of global affairs and kind of like fashion and style. And a friend of mine who was on my master's program had done the internship and she had completed the two months and then they kept her on sort of like as a freelancer. So she sort of did some proofreading and fact checking, did a couple of their podcasts and she said it was like a really good experience. And we, and we sort of meet up, like all the people in my class and exchange stories. So she sort of gave it a big thumbs up. And so that's what made me apply. I hadn't seen it advertised really or anything like, yeah, this is basically on her recommendation. And what was the application and interview process like for you? I sent a CV and a covering letter. Like they didn't ask me to do anything beyond that. I didn't hear back for about... I think it was about two months so I figured I didn't get it which I thought was a bit weird because like a friend of mine who had recommended it to me she also recommended me to them so I was like oh but then I um heard back like the two months later from the managing editor to come in for an interview and it was a pretty lengthy interview actually it's probably about an hour and I had to give examples of my work and, you know, not written story ideas, but sort of like verbal kind of ideas. And they took me through the sort of process of what the internship would entail. And that was, you know, this roster of a mix of shifts. So there'd be a morning shift from 5.30 a.m. till 2, a day shift from 9 until 6, and then an evening shift that went from 2.30 to 11 and was I up for sort of working like these odd hours and 
And then they sort of told me all about the, the duties that I would do, like a lot of proofreading, a lot of fact checking, but I'd also be invited to the morning conferences and be able to contribute and sort of act as a support to the producers and researchers. The takeaway was really you will get out of this what you put in. So if you just do the bare minimum of tasks, that's up to you. But a lot of people that we hire actually come through the internship. So it's really on your kind of onus is on you to pitch ideas and get stuck in and go the extra mile because that's the way that you'll stand out. Mm. And so that all sounded fine. But then he sort of said, we pay like expenses only, a little bit above expenses. And I wasn't 100% sure what that meant. And I think had I been 20 years old and, you know, my first internship, I probably would have been a little bit scared to ask. But I just basically said, like, you know, what does that mean? And that's when he said it was £30 a day. And I must say I kind of... um, Did you guffaw? I must say I kind of, like caught my breath a little bit I went back to the ad and in like at the very end it said expenses are covered so I kind of had a vague idea but I didn't sort of think it would be that but having sort of listened to what he said and how much it would be a kind of potential springboard to regular freelance work for them and they're quite well known to pay well for mm. freelance works. Their rate is 80p a word, which is very Great. good yeah. compared to a lot of other newspapers and magazines. So I kind of just said, like, thank you. Like the interview, I mean, they didn't offer me the role straight away. Like they said, thank you. We're, we're seeing a lot of other people. We'll be in touch. And so I didn't have to make a decision then and there. So I sort of came home and thought about it a little bit. But seeing that my friend had had such a great experience there and I was already freelancing for The Economist, so I'd done a paid internship at The Economist previously and was a regular contributor as a result of that. So I kind of figured, well, maybe it'll be like another magazine that I can add to my freelance roster, Mm. like it would be a sort of good investment. And my husband was like, well, you know, the money didn't really make a massive difference, whether it was £30 or £60, like he said it was fine. So when they offered it to me, I was like, okay, well, that's the deal. And it's only two months. And if I pitch lots of story ideas, then I'll, you know, they'll keep me on as a freelancer. And like that, that's all cool. Was there any point that you thought, you know what, I'm worth more than 30 pounds a day? Yeah, of course, like instantly. But I really kind of, the thing is, is that having gone and done a master's in journalism, like I'd gone, you know, studied with a bunch of other students. The common theme for all of us since graduating is doing internships. Like everyone's done at least two or three. I think there's one girl that went straight into the press association. It's pretty kind of standard for journalism in London to do internships. And a lot of them are actually completely unpaid, as in they don't even pay any expenses. So part of me was like, well, if you're using my skills that I've worked at for the last sort of 10 years, like I can proofread really well. I've been working as a copywriter. like. But then on the other hand, it's like I'm new as a journalist, so I really am fairly unproven. So it sort of felt like it was like a 
paying your dues kind of rite of passage. And the thing is, it's just like everyone was doing it. So I didn't feel like I had any right to be special or to bypass that kind of almost mandatory expectation that that's sort of what you have to do. But yeah, there was part of me that was like, well, how is this sustainable? Like a lot of people in my course would have loved to have done the monocle internship. Like one guy in particular was like, oh my God, that sounds awesome. But I'm working at the London Eye for just above minimum wage. Like there's just no way I could do that. And he, you know, he's a really talented guy. Like he can edit his own video he speaks fluent French, Monocle's very global. He would have really benefited from it, but he couldn't do it. So I was sort of thinking, hang on, like literally I can only do this because I've got a partner that has a good income. Mm. So I was a little bit kind of like, "Mm," but I did it anyway. And so it was just really in the first sort of week or two that I kind of really started to question the like legitimacy of that choice because once I sort of started it was really clear that it wasn't an internship as anyone would understand it it was essentially a job I had a vital role of booking guests and bringing them into the studio on time and calling live correspondence on air like there was no other person who would was doing that. It wasn't like I was being trained next Mm. to somebody. And so... So you were like a radio producer right away. Yeah. And like in the morning shift that started at 5.30, I was the first person in the studio, like clearing up, getting the scripts ready, making sure like all the formatting was right, printing out the scripts. Like, you know, it's not brain surgery, Mm. but a human has to do it. And I just kind of thought, well, this is really cheeky because this has really been mislabeled. Like it's not an internship where you're work shadowing someone or it's all about learning. Like they gave you this printed handbook on day one and you just read that and that was all your all your tasks. And if you had any questions, you just asked one of the other five interns. It was really the nature of the work that started to really trigger me into thinking that even though I was a little bit ambivalent at first about maybe being worth more, I was certainly sure that they were being really, really cheeky in not paying us at least the minimum wage to do that job. The jobs that we were doing, like if all the interns didn't turn up, very crucial aspects of these radio shows and the magazine just wouldn't get done. Mm. So can you take me to that moment when you said in your article, this is when I fell out of love with my internship. Walk me through what led you to start feeling that way. It was probably about a month in of doing a lot of very, very early mornings. So I'd start at 5.30 in the morning, which meant my alarm went off at about quarter to four, quarter past four. So it's pitch black still. And I'd be getting ready and you know doing an eight hour day and come home. And I'd probably have dinner at like, I don't know, 4.30 and be like tucked in bed by hopefully eight o'clock at night. So I didn't really get to see a lot of my friends or my family. And so about a month in after doing those kinds of shifts, I kind of started thinking, well, hang on, I've only taken home like 150 pounds this week. And 
I could, you know, see little bits of my writing like published in their magazine and I, you know, successfully booked some really like obscure guests. I had to sort of use my Italian and I was working and, you know, coming home tired and bringing work home sometimes, like fact checking that I hadn't finished or transcribing like a lot of the other journalists basically used the interns free transcribing service. You know, as we all know in journalism, transcribing takes a lot of time and it's sort of labor intensive. And sometimes we, we didn't finish it in our shifts. I would genuinely bring work home for me. And I sort of started to think, well, hang on, this is a bit much really doing hours of work outside. But, you know, you're, you're grateful for the experience and the other interns were doing it and it was sort of quite competitive. So you, you want to stand out. And but the best way of standing out at Monocle was really to pitch story ideas, like to approach an editor and say, I've got this really great idea that I think belongs in the newspaper or magazine and I think you should run it. The culture editor asked for pitches for their summer newspaper. They wanted a really big, splashy, image-led story that could go on the front page of the culture section and they hadn't filled it yet. So the sort of race was on to find the right story that would, you know, really impress them and make them understand that, you know, you had tons of ideas. And so I spent about two evenings after my shift sort of researching and found that there was a a museum in Ramallah in Palestine called the Palestinian Museum. And it had actually been open for, I think, just over two years, but it hadn't had any exhibitions yet just due to internal bureaucracy and but they were unveiling their first ever exhibition about the city of Jerusalem which coincided with the print deadlines and and everything and you know it's a beautiful structure the architecture is really sympathetic to the landscape and I managed to get an interview with the director of the museum Mohammed Hawari so that was sort of texting and WhatsApping people in Palestine just to make sure that they were happy to talk to me. So I brought this story to the culture editor, Robert Bound, and he was like, fabulous. Like, that's a really great story. We're going to run it as a Q&A. And can you get me like 1,500 words by this date? And I was like, yep, sure. So that was all cool, except I was still working my normal hours, like doing a lot of research and, you know, assisting the producers and stuff like that. So I did a lot of that work, all of that work really outside of my designated intern hours, which was fine. And then, you know, interviewing Dr. Hawari, transcribing the interviews and then filing the story. So I was sort of working like 12 hours, 13 hours a day to, you know, on top of my shift. Mm. And so, you know, that meant not even seeing my friends or husband or anything like at all. But, you know, that's sort of what you just do. Like that's journalism isn't a nine to five job. Like you, you sort of take calls at odd hours and, you know, that's sort of the deal. Except after I filed the story, due to the print runs, the sub editors and the fact checkers worked over the weekend to get the newspaper kind of ready for like layout and print deadlines for the for the Monday. So I got an email on a Saturday afternoon. I was sitting outside like in my little courtyard having a glass of wine with some of my friends and I get this email on my phone just saying like, hi, Malia, like I'm working on your piece. I'm the fact checker. I've just got a couple of questions. 
they'd set it all out like like any fact checker or any sub editor does like mm-hmm. they always have questions I know you know it's the weekend but it'd be really great if you could get these answers to me like ASAP like the subject line was actually urgent and so I was just kind of like really <laughs> like I'm like I, I've done a sort of 60 hour week at this point I was just having like my Saturday and of, and of course you need to answer questions you can't not you just ignore an email it's, it's really unprofessional but I just thought hang on a second like this just doesn't make any sense I basically worked so much on this surely someone could have gathered all the questions like or at least at least sort of said we'll pay you for any time that you go over your internship time but it was made explicit in my job interview that any writing or any story ideas that we would pitch or that would get published wouldn't be paid because we were interns and so I knew I wasn't going to get paid for any of this and I suddenly just like a little sort of light in my brain went on and I was really like indignant And I just sort of said, this is really taking a lot of liberties contacting me on the weekend. I'm not an ER heart surgeon. I think it's really sort of a little bit much. And it just sort of dawned on me that this internship was completely one-sided. Like they were getting a lot of hours and a lot of like work out of me. And I was getting very, very little in return. And I just really fell out of love with the whole setup and the bargain I just felt was really stacked against me. That's basically the moment walking upstairs on a beautiful Saturday afternoon, doing extra work for for no money and where I completely fell out of love with the internship. And if it had been paid, would it have been a dream internship for you, do you think? Yeah, I think it it would have, it's a strange thing, money, because it was basically paid at, I think I worked it out at half the legal minimum wage. So when I worked it out per hour, it was like £3.30 an hour. And the minimum wage here is about £7. So £3 an hour, it's not going to change my life. If you're paid for your work, it gives you a sense of pride, a sense of value and a sense of sort of belonging and not being paid the legal limit or even the the standard freelance rate, it did sort of erode your sense of worth. I think in my soul, I thought that if I impressed them enough, they would sort of offer me money for the article at least and say, look, that was, you know, they ran that as a front page and you helped them and out was, and, you know, they had a gap and you swooped in with your great idea. Yeah, like yeah. I actually thought they'd say, you know what, like other interns, like we don't actually pay them, but we're so happy with this. They actually said like, you know, you're like one of the first people to get like a splash. I, I don't know if you call that in Australia, but, you know, front pages, yeah. it's a splash. I kind of thought, oh, well, you know, maybe they'll just say that they'll, they'll pay me. And then it was nothing. Like it was just, a, oh, thanks. Thanks for your work. And I kind of felt that that was so cavalier and because the picture editor had been paid the sub editor who was working on my article over the weekend had been paid the fact checker had been paid the culture editor had been paid the freelance photographer who we sent to Ramallah who I helped organize had been paid like and all her expenses from Tel Aviv to the West Bank 
And I was just like, so out of this whole ecosystem of people who worked on this piece, it was my idea and I basically like pulled it off and I'm the only one not getting paid. It kind of showed me what kind of organisation it was. If people are happy to kind of put themselves up for this, we're going to basically accept it. I don't know that they're completely malicious and they, they want to deny like interns any money and they think it's I, I think they're not thinking about it at all and for me that was really kind of insulting mm. so on one hand yes I did get to work in a newsroom and I got to work on some stories that were really cool but it was not working for people who had respect for the craft of journalism in in a way because it takes time and it, it takes energy and it just takes a lot of dedication to pull off original journalism like first-hand reporting like not just ripping mm. it off the internet and rejigging it and I just thought that this kind of company wasn't it wasn't people that I ultimately wanted to work for. So once you were inside because you had mentioned that there were you know your friend who you found out about this internship had said that there were interns that went on to get hired did you investigate that while you were there and to see if that yeah and, and was I, that true? It's definitely true. Like a lot of the staff, a lot of the section editors started as interns. Like that's definitely true. And I think it was genuinely at that point where I wasn't paid for that piece that I was like, you know what, I don't even want to freelance here because if this is the sort of pipeline of their workers, I definitely don't want to be part of this. So... I knew I wanted to kind of write about it from then and there. I hadn't decided to go the legal route, but I definitely didn't want to be party to this kind of way of doing things. Mm -hmm. How they worked is, you know, you'd be an intern for two months and then they'd keep you on as a freelancer. Like, so when they needed someone, you'd be sort of like on call. And then when there was a vacancy, you would be, among the first to hear about the vacancy and sort of invited to apply. That's okay. how I understood it worked. So it wasn't like about finishing the internship and just stepping into a permanent role. Like you had to kind of be on their books as a freelancer for some time and, you know, the right role had to come up that suited what they needed and what you were sort of good at. That suited my friend at, at mm. from Goldsmiths. Like she just thought it was brilliant and I think she still freelances for them now she's worked on one of their podcasts as soon as my internship was done like I was I was done there mm. definitely are you still friends with this person that put you onto it <laughs> yeah I mean we're like Facebook friends okay <laughs> um, <laughs> loose so acquaintances you've done so much research into the internship landscape in the United Kingdom so what were some of the things that really surprised you in your research that you're like, what the? Internships have been around since kind of like the 90s. It's an American sort of export that we've sort of embraced with open arms mm. here in the UK. But in the 90s, early 2000s, they were sort of like one or two weeks or three or four weeks. Like it was, it was a short kind of trial run before entering a paid job you do an internship for four weeks they'd take you on if they had like some permanent freelance roles but what's really changed in the last sort of decade 
from my research is the length of time of these internships. So they went from a matter of weeks to a matter of months. And it wasn't just about doing one or two. I read an academic paper called All Work and No Pay that came out of the University of Glasgow. And these researchers found that on average, interns in the creative industries were willing to work up to a thousand hours, which works out to six months for free. And most of them surveyed said, you know, they felt the work was basically exploitative and not tied to any like training. They had to come with all the skills already, like there was Mm -hmm. no actual training given and there was very little prospect of an actual job at the end of it. And that kind of really shocked me, like, because six months is quite a long time to work for no money. Because anecdotally, I'd heard people in my class, like, said, oh, well, you know, I did two, three months here, and then I did two, three months here. And so I kind of knew that there were people that were sort of up for it, but I didn't realize that that was sort of like representative of everybody. Mm-hmm. And so that really shocked me because. It made me sort of think that all these new graduates were up against people that are absolutely willing to do whatever it takes to get their sort of first break. And it completely filters out anybody who doesn't have parents who live in London or parents who are happy to support them or family members or partners. And it kind of just gave me a sort of insight into the scale of the problem And then I sort of read into sort of the the numbers and the numbers on unpaid interns are quite sketchy because, you know, a lot of the internships are quite informal and most of the unpaid ones are illegal. So it's very, very hard to get good data. But the Sutton Trust did some modelling on it and they sort of estimated that there's about 20,000 unpaid interns at any given time. And, you know, that's a lot of people just working in the British economy for no money a lot of people not paying income tax and and it kind of just made me contextualize my experience and I was like well it's not just me being a grumpy intern it's endemic in a lot of industries Mm. and so I started to sort of dig a little bit deeper and I found that after speaking to a woman called Tanya de Grunwald who runs a website called Graduate Bog and she's been campaigning against exploitative internships for about eight years and she sort of said it's the media it's creative industries like design advertising PR and it's politics that are really entrenched and it's actually getting worse so then that's when I started looking into finding out a little bit more about the numbers and I didn't find the actual numbers for all of those industries like it's impossible but I did speak to a lot of former interns who basically attested to the fact that you can't get your first job as a political researcher or as a design studio assistant or as a researcher in a newsroom without a good couple of good internships under your belt. Like, you just can't. That's definitely backing up what we have found through our research with the Starting Somewhere podcast. So I'm just curious, when did you decide that taking it next level and getting all (laughs) litigious would be a good option for you to raise awareness of this problem? When I decided to investigate my own, because I was really angry, like the day that I filed my story and it came out front page and I got a sort of like pat on the shoulder like thanks Amalia that was great with zero 
with zero money, I wanted to kind of find out how common this was. So I went to the National Union of Journalists and they were like, this is really, really rampant for new graduates. Like, you know, the fact that they even paid you £30 a day is actually all right in comparison. And That's I was terrible. just kind of like, well, yeah. how, how does this happen? Because it, it is illegal according to our labour laws if you have a contract, whether it doesn't even need to be written, if you have any kind of written or verbal contract to turn up to a, a place of work every day, you're a worker, you're not a volunteer. Like it's not like I could just roll over when my alarm went off at quarter past four and decide then and there not to come in. Like I had to come in. So that makes me a worker and that makes me entitled to minimum wage at least. But the problem is, is that our HMRC, like Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, they don't have enough people, like humans, to go after people like businesses in violation of minimum wage. Like they just don't have the resources. So at the moment, it's up to the worker who believes that they're entitled to more to actually file a complaint within three months of leaving a job. So as you can imagine, this doesn't happen very often in the cases of internships, which are unpaid, because at the very least, these people are hoping to be paid in sort of social capital in terms of getting a good reference, in terms of making connections, in terms of impressive editors. So the last thing these interns are going to do is say, hang on, I think I'm entitled to more money. I'm going to pursue it through the employment tribunal. Like They don't do that. Like It's, it's a handful of cases that have been brought forward. And so when I was interviewing from Graduate Fog, she basically said the biggest problem is interns not coming forward. They're too scared. Like they think that it will put a dynamite under their career and like they won't work again. And that's sort of what I found in um, that research paper I mentioned earlier, All Work and No Pay, is those researchers found that people who complained to their employer then and there about no pay quickly found themselves like iced out. So she said to me, look, I think the best thing you can do to raise awareness is to put a claim in. And that kind of sent a little bit of a shiver down my spine because I hadn't considered that. I wanted to maybe write about it and say like, you know, this is a problem and this is my experience, but I certainly hadn't considered legal action. So she put me in touch with Jolyon Maugham, who's a, a very prominent Queen's Council here in London, who represented Gina Miller taking the government to court over Brexit, like the legitimacy of Brexit. And so he has a sort of pro bono side business called the Good Law Project, which essentially uses the British law for what he sees as greater good. So he works completely pro bono on cases that he feels could make a difference to endemic kind of problems. Mm -hmm. And so he basically said, look, if you are up for bringing a case, I'm up for manning you with the solicitors and the barristers and all the resources you need to put the best case possible forward. And so I kind of felt it'd be wrong not to actually 
take up that offer. Like it, I was quite surprised actually, you know, it didn't take me very long to, why not? Like, I think I need to do this because I think there's one thing just to complain about a system and to complain that things could be better and just to complain that, you know, and that's what a lot of interns privately do. They just think it's completely unfair, but it takes a lot of not just not really courage, but it just takes a lot of resources mm. to have mm. the confidence to to pursue a case. And I was in a really fortunate position in that I have a roof over my head and I can eat every day. The worst that can happen is, you know, what I lose and that's it. Mm. So I felt that the stakes were a bit lower for me. You know, it's about using that privileged position to kind of change things for people that genuinely couldn't think of bringing a case forward because it would just be too risky for them. What is the status of your case at the moment? We actually just got a court date last week. So it's set for the end of August. The steps that it involves is basically me launching a sort of grievance with a thing called ACAS, which is kind of like in a divorce where you hopefully mediate with your the other party. So I did that. And then if you can't come to an agreement and Monocle didn't respond, if you can't come to agreement, then you launch an actual full-on case with the employment tribunal. And it's up to the employment tribunal to vet that case and say, yes, you have a case and we will send it to the respondent to reply. So that's what's happened. And then now Monocle has 28 days to reply formally. What's your ultimate goal with filing suit? I'm not allowed to ask for any kind of damages or anything like that. So all I'm allowed to ask for is for the law to be upheld. So I'm allowed to say, I believe I was a worker. I believe that I was paid illegally and here are the reasons why. And if it's found in my favor, Monocle will have to pay me the exact minimum wage that they owe me and they will have to pay whatever it is in total. They'll have to pay 200% to Her Majesty's Revenue and Customers. They'll only have to pay like, I think, I don't know, £3,000 in total maximum. What I want to see is I would like to go to court. So if they settle and offer me, say, £10,000 just to, you know, for all your stress and we're not going to accept any guilt, but here's some money so that I wouldn't accept that. So I do want a guilty finding if that's the case. Like I believe that I have a case and that they need to answer it. I can't predict what the you know magistrate will say. What I do want is for the law to rule that this was illegal and I want that to be crystal clear and I want them to stop. I mean, they've already taken down their London editorial internship ads. So they took that down when I gave them right of reply for my article. It just vanished. So I want them to basically be found to be in violation of minimum wage law. And I I would like to write a follow-up piece publicly sort of says that as a deterrent to other businesses who are doing the same thing. So hopefully make an example of Monocle 
to. One of the things you said in your piece was that you were nervous to come forward because you were worried that it was going to have an impact on your career. Have you seen any or had any career backlash as of yet? No, that's what's been fantastic. That's what sort of unpaid internships do to people. It erodes your self-confidence. It says, you're not worth any more money than what we're happy to pay you. You're not worth even the minimum wage. Like You're worth less than than your Saturday. I mean, I've done Saturday jobs at supermarkets and I was, it was hilarious. Like I was like, I've never been paid less in my life and I've never had more qualifications. And you kind of feel it erodes your confidence in a bunch of ways. And it kind of makes you think, well, hang on, if they don't think I'm worth more, no one's going to think I'm worth more. And if I complain, then they're going to think I'm like a troublemaker. And, and that the opposite has happened. Like, I think if you're a journalist and you look at the facts and you look at the evidence and you look at the research that's going on and you speak to all the right people and you really find out that this is a genuine problem, it's not just me, like, spitting my dummy out, then other people and other people in the industry are really sympathetic to that because we all know it's a problem. So since my article came out, I've been contacted by editors of newspapers. I've been contacted by the BBC, been contacted by the independent newspaper, The Guardian, like other editors just saying, like, we really liked that. It shows that you can research something really well. Tell me what you want to write about and I will, you know, help make that happen. So I've actually got a lot more commissions out of it because because it was a, a valid point. I think maybe if it just been like a 500 word opinion piece, mm. just complaining, maybe it wouldn't have had the same kind of impact. But I think because I took the time to kind of contextualize it, it convinced people that perhaps hadn't thought about it in that way, that this is a real problem and it's a real problem for social mobility and it's a real problem for the people that it, it locks out. Like it, it's not about Amalia Ilgner getting an extra three pounds an hour. It's about opening up internships to proper competition so that normal people can apply. So it's actually been really positive for my career, like which is great. Thank you so much for your time. Cool. Thanks so much, Buffy. No, it was a pleasure and good luck to you. Starting Somewhere is brought to you by the University of Melbourne External Relations Team. The producers and editors are Buffy Gorilla and Ben Pawson. Our supervising producer and original concept is from Dr. Andy Horvath. Thanks to everyone who has made Starting Somewhere a reality. Stay tuned for future episodes.